on today's episode of Power of the Towel for the Nux Misconduct Network. The Vancouver Canucks are moving on to the Stanley Cup playoffs after beating the Minnesota Wild in four games. We go over what happened and we look forward to a series against the Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues, which will be starting tomorrow when you listen to this episode. We end this episode with what you should take away from the NHL qualifying rounds this year. I'm going to tell you what the main lesson is from these qualifying rounds. And we have as a guest this week, none other than Blake Price of TSN 1040. Should be a good one. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. He's not a person at all. He's a towel. You're a towel. But in Vancouver, mainly it's all about towel power. Are you ready? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Power of the Towel for the Next Misconduct Network. I'm your host, Nick Bonney. Before you go any further... Stop what you're doing right now and subscribe to the Next Misconduct Network. You get the quickie daily hockey show hosted by Trevor Beggs, Silky and Filthy, Puck Talk and Bullshit, Trevor Beggs, and Kyle Bowen. And of course, Sipping on a 40, our post-game recap show. After every game, myself, Kyle Bowen, and a special guest. Who's going to be the next guest after game one? You're going to have to wait and find out because I'm not going to tell you right now. So as we mentioned off the top, and I'm sure you're well aware, the Vancouver Canucks defeated the Minnesota Wild in four games to move on to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And we've said this on Sippin' on 40, it's nice to have meaningful games back. It's nice to get invested in these games. After the years of the so-called death march, as I believe Jeff Patterson called it when he was on this show, where the Canucks were playing out the stretch. You're hoping for a better draft position. The games don't really matter. They're playing out the string, but it's nice to have these meaningful games back. And yes, it's a bit of a weird system where you're playing hockey in late July, early August, a best of five. But 2020 has been a weird year. and You just got to embrace it. Embrace the fake. That's what we've been saying on this network for a while. Now, the last time we did an episode, it was right after game one. And the Canucks were down 1-0, and it wasn't looking good. They got thoroughly outplayed in Game 1, lost 3-0. Couldn't get any offense going. Jacob Markstrom was okay. He wasn't great. He wasn't necessarily bad, but he was okay. But since that, Game 1, Canucks won three straight to take the series. And they didn't need Jacob Markstrom to be lights out for all three games. He obviously had that one good game where he had a shutout. But even in game four, the deciding game, it turned out, didn't have the best game. Had a couple goals I'm sure you'd like to have back, but the team just outscored their problems that night. And that was really encouraging. And that was a game where the the Minnesota Wild actually took the first, took the lead, won nothing. And I'm thinking, oh man, it's going to be tough from here. We all know how the Minnesota Wild like to play. Sit back, crowd the middle, don't let anything through. Protect that lead at all costs. But the Minnesota Wild looked very porous defensively, even with the lead. 
Vancouver Canucks were able to win that game 5-4 off a of Chris Tanev. Chris Tanev overtime winner. And it was some poetic justice for Chris Tanev to get that series winner. He's been around since 2011. Don't forget, he was on that 2011 team. Kyle, I hope you're not listening to this. He was on that 2011 team that lost to the Bruins. He was a young chap back then. I think he was 20, 21 years old, just fresh out of college, fresh out of being an undrafted free agent. But obviously a warrior through and through for these Vancouver Canucks. He's been here for the good times, and he's been here for a lot of bad times too. Again, he's a free agent after this after this year, after whenever the Canucks get eliminated. Not sure where he's going, but it was nice to see Chris Tanev get the series winner. Of course, we're going to go over what happened in that series, break it all down a bit more when we have Blake Price on the show. Okay, so the Vancouver Canucks, who are they playing? Well, they'll be playing the St. Louis Blues. Yes, the St. Louis Blues, the defending Stanley Cup champion. St. Louis Blues. I think if you polled Canucks fans pre that game on Sunday between Dallas and St. Louis, they would want Dallas. The least convincing out of those four teams playing the round-robin games, the one with the least amount of pedigree, you know. Vegas obviously made the Stanley Cup final that first year. Very deep team. We all know what you can do. Colorado, Nathan McKinnon, Miko Ratanen. Give the Canucks trouble anytime they play. And St. Louis, defending Stanley Cup champions. But I, I was thinking about this on the drive over here to the post-up studios in North Burnie where we record all of the Next Misconduct podcast. Look, forget how the Canucks fared against St. Louis in the regular season. Throw those numbers out the window. That was so long ago. Mark only started one of those games, too, out of those three games. So let's throw those numbers out the window. St. Louis, in the round-robin games, looked disinterested. They didn't, they didn't want to be there. So the question is going to be, are they able to flip the switch once they realize the defense of the Stanley Cup starts now? And if they do, I think, I think unfortunately, they can beat the Canucks. But if it takes a while for them to get going, the Canucks have been playing meaningful games before then, four games. I think the Canucks can pull off a series. They can make it interesting. And let's not forget, in the round-robin games, I'm not talking about the regular season, I'm talking about these three round-robin games the St. Louis Blues just played. They had a lead. All three games didn't win a single game. They were nursing a 1-0 lead against Dallas on Sunday. Joe Pavelski scores a winner Sorry, a tying goal, late in regulation, and they win in the shootout. And I see a lot of similarities between Minnesota and St. Louis, and you're probably thinking, what the hell is this guy talking about? They're similar to Minnesota in the way that St. Louis doesn't have that much star power up front. They have Tarasenko, O'Reilly, and that's really about it. They have a lot of solid players, but they don't have that star power that some other teams like a Colorado would have. So in a way, I think that Minnesota series is very, very, was, sorry, very, very good practice for a potential matchup against St. Louis. The depth, just like Minnesota, the depth of St. Louis in forward and defense 
is obviously a lot better. We cannot kid ourselves. The St. Louis Blues can roll out three defensive pairings that are solid. They are absolutely rock solid. Petrangelo, Pareko, Jared Spurgeon, Justin Falk. They can roll out three really, really good pairings. And in forward depth, obviously, they have a speed, but the bottom six has impressed. Brandon Sutter was one of the best players in that series against Minnesota. Let's not kid ourselves. He had a good series. But there are some similarities between St. Louis and Minnesota that I think can pair well for the Vancouver Canucks. Now, for my official prediction, that's tough. I'm not as confident in a win as I was against Minnesota. I mean, these are the defending Stanley Cup champions after all. But you know what? I think I'm going to go... I think it's going to be close. I think it's this series is going to go six or seven games. And you know what? I'm going to go Canucks in seven. Why not? Embrace the fake. Anything can happen. Have we not learned anything from these Stanley Cup playoff play-ins so far? Both 12 seeds advanced. This can happen. I wouldn't put any result out of the question out of these eight qualifying rounds. Goalie gets hot, boom, you're out. So I'm going Canucks in seven. I think those top-end players for the Canucks, and that's where they're going to have advantage against St. Louis, is guys like Elias Pettersson, a lot more dynamic than I think a lot of these St. Louis forwards, and even a guy like Brock Besser. But these are the defending Stanley Cup champions. But I think the Canucks can make this a close series and maybe even pull it off. This is not going to be a Vegas, Colorado Colorado situation where you're expecting them to win both those series in five, six games pretty handedly. No, I think this series between the Canucks and St. Louis Blues is going to be close. And I think the Canucks have a chance. All right, and as we mentioned off the top, our guest this week, he's from TSN 1040. It's Blake Price. Just a minute. Don't hang up. Yellow. You'll have to speak up. I'm wearing a towel. We now welcome on Power of the Towel. You know him from TSN 1040. It's a Karrison Price show. It's Blake Price. Blake, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. You? I'm doing, I'm doing terrific. You know, this is a big moment for me. This is the first time I've had an entire sports radio show from the city on the show. I had Andrew Wadden on. I've had Matt Sakaris on. And now I've had you. That's, that's amazing. I mean, great that you got Matt on. Uh, I, I mean, the, the fact that you got Andrew on, that's the toughest get right there. He's a very, very tough man to get a hold of. So that's uh, it's very, very good. Yeah, absolutely. And for my younger listeners... I don't know if you're a big Yu-Gi-Oh fan. This is like completing Exodia for me. Like the first, having the very first final piece of that sports radio show on is awesome. And before we get going any further, I want to belatedly congratulate you for your 2000 British Columbia Association of Broadcasters Award Performer of Tomorrow. I, you know, it's nice to see that hard work finally pays off. It, uh, I can't believe that that is. Is that from 2000? Yeah. 20 years ago. I guess tomorrow never came, huh? Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was a nice honor at the time. Actually, funny story about that. I actually got surprised by that. Um, what happened there? I was working for Global already. I had left BCIT, mm-hmm. and I was working for Global. And my news director at the time, 
invited me up. The BCAB Awards were in Kamloops that, that year. And he said, uh, I need some help presenting that award. Can you go up there and sort of represent the station and blah, blah, blah. So I went up there thinking I was helping present an award. And then he, uh, he tricked me. And somebody all of a sudden came up to present that award. And so they announced my name as the winner. And so, you know, the spotlight comes on you. You know, I was in a, in a convention center sort of setting. And all of a sudden, I'm walking up to the stage and I freeze. So people think, you know, once you're a broadcaster, you're cool in front of crowds all the time, yada, yada. I got up there and I, if I said the words thank you, that would have been an accomplishment. Like I literally was up there. I was so shocked. Not because it was like winning an Academy Award or anything. Just, I was just so legitimately shocked uh, that I had been tricked. And I got up there and I was like, oh, uh, uh, I couldn't utter anything. I was completely unintelligible. To which the people in the audience were probably like, this this is the broadcaster of tomorrow? Anyway, uh, it all worked out in the end. But I was legitimately shocked. So, so I got that from your Wikipedia page. How do you have a Wikipedia? How does Matt Sikaris not have a Wikipedia page and you do? And that's no shot at you. I thought if you have one, I thought Matt would have one for sure, but it, it turns out he doesn't. That's, uh, I did not know that. Um, you didn't amazing. know you had a Wikipedia page? You pointed that out. And it's a, it, between that and the fact that I'm verified on Twitter and he's not, which he brings up passive aggressively probably three times a week. Um, you know, those are two. I also, here's another little trivia fact, I also have an IMDB page. Nice. Because I have uh, done a couple of things on TV, like as a broadcaster and movies and stuff like that. So I have an IMDB page, and he doesn't as well. Just another tick in the box there. Yeah, you're 3-0 and in that category. Yeah. But you do have that shotgun, Jake and Champ. I'm, sh I'm sure he holds that over you like all the time. Actually, I know that for a fact, because that's the first question I asked him when he had him on my show, was how often yeah. do you bring that up? Uh, he brings it up a fair amount. Um, he, he, he that one he admits, you know, he has to admit that like it, it's not all bad. Like yeah, there's a certain amount of gumption in posting a self-deprecating video. You know, you, you have to have a little metal to you, and so he admits that that uh, you know that's not a that, that's not a typical fail video because uh, I got some street cred for that one. Yeah, it, it, that was mad respect for putting that out there. But I, I would I would not have that video see the light of day. If, if that was me, I just don't have that kind of self-confidence. I was self -confidence. ready to do it over again. I was ready to do it over, and and the women in my life all said, no, no, you got to put that out there. I was like, really? So I begrudgingly pointed it out there, and the rest is history. See, I was going to say that as a guest of your show, a guest on this show, I was going to do you the honor of trying to scrub that from the internet. I was going to go out of there and try and delete that everywhere I could, but if you're cool with it, well, we can just leave it. No, I, yeah, it's become a badge of honor. God, my buddies, Jane Dan put it on sports center, you know, a few days after the fact, uh, it went, uh, I mean, I don't even know where it's at now. It's over a hundred thousand views on YouTube. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So why I want to have you on the show is you've been in this market a while. You host the, the post game show on TSN 1040, which by the way, I listened to after game four, you did a great job. And so I, my question is, do you feel the passion is back? with this team and in this city because you know you had the you had the car flag tweet you saw car flags that's the big indicator to me if i'm seeing car flags around the city i'm thinking people are getting excited but from your sense of being on the radio talking to people being uh, being around the city do you feel that the passion is back with the team that people are getting behind this team in the in the playoffs yeah i, I think it, surprisingly so i was really blown away that the 
the bubble hockey and this whole format has taken off as much as, as it has. I was skeptical that people would buy into it as much as they have. And uh, I think it helps that the TV format looks as good as it does. I think if it had looked rinky dink or if it had looked cavernous, like just empty seats and they hadn't done the dress up work of the set that they have, that maybe we wouldn't feel the same way. But, you know, I said this midway that I think everybody was buying in. I think like a Toronto Maple Leaf fan might console themselves by saying, oh, this is this is a make-believe sort of format now. Anyway, I don't I don't care that the Leafs lost. Um, I think some might console themselves with that. But deep down, in the middle of that play-in series, whether you were losing or winning, I think you were all into it. Uh, you know, Vancouver market most certainly, because the Canucks seemed like they were in it from the start, even with a, an 0-1 deficit. Um, but I think everybody league wide was, was pretty much into it. If you're saying you're not into it now, it's probably because your team lost. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And just to, to mention that further, you know, Kyle and I and sipping out of 40 have talked about this throughout the series. You know, that's the post game podcast we do after yeah. every game. And it's just nice to have these type of games to care about. It's nice having games to get passionate about and get irrational about as a hockey fan. And I had, when I had Jeff Patterson on, he talked about covering the death march, as you guys call it, you know, those games, 10, 15 games at the end of the season where you know the Canucks aren't making the playoffs and there's a whole debate online whether the team wants to lose, whether they should win, and you're just covering the string. But it's nice to have these games, and I'm sure as a broadcaster, you can attest to this. As a fan, it's nice, but as a broadcaster, I'm sure you can attest to this, that it's nice to have these games to care about, like games that matter. Yeah, again, I just didn't know that we would get that effect. I mean, I I, I enjoy doing the post-game shows, but it's... Uh, you know, it, it's only fun doing a post game show when you're pretty sure that you're talking to people who care. So if this had fallen flat, um, I don't know that it would have the same sort of um, gravitas, you know, on the post game show. Like, uh, all the, uh, we're Whitecaps rights holders. Like the White, I wasn't sure what to think of the MLS return to play because I, you know, I, I thought it was kind of a good idea to do a tournament rather than the playoffs because then if you had to cancel. Well, it's okay. You weren't you weren't canceling the playoffs. You're just canceling the tournament, right? You could you see you sort of had a you had an exit ramp, but conversely, they couldn't really enthrall you maybe the same way that the NHL is currently enthralling people because these are the playoffs. The Stanley Cup's on the line, so people are buying in. Um, you know, even if the Whitecaps had gone on, would we really have been as ramped up as if they were on the brink of an MLS championship? Probably not, because it was just this. COVID cup, whatever the heck they're calling it. I don't even know. So um, I, I'm I'm happy that people are as uh, excited about the return to plays there. Yeah, like I'm not a big MLS guy. I just learned recently that this MLS's back tournament isn't the playoffs. It's just a tournament. I right. thought it was like, I, thought, I, I just thought it was like the bubble, like the NHL. It turns out they're going to try and play more games. Like I just got confused. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It, it, it was, it had its merits to some degree. So I said, because if they had to cancel it, you know, if, if if cases you know started taking off a weekend, I'm sorry, I don't know what people are doing in the. Oh no, trust here. me, yeah, um, worst things have happened on this I, show. Do not worry. If they were, uh, you know, if, if if they did have to cancel because of COVID cases, they could just cancel it because it was just a tournament. But as it stands, uh, you know, the Whitecaps were limited anyway, and so we don't care. Okay, so speaking of that other Vancouver team, the Vancouver Canucks, they beat the Minnesota Wild three to one in a five game series. Who is your MVP of this series? Of uh, this series, wow. We had this debate, and you know the praise gets. Uh, I, w- I won't be so cliche to say it gets spread out amongst like eighteen skaters, but it does get spread out over a handful anyway. Um, we certainly don't do the uh, 
the fallback position of Jacob Markstrom, which we would normally do. It's certainly not Jacob Markstrom after the uh, third no series that he had, and that's usually one of the default positions. It's not Elias Pettersson. He was good, but he wasn't amazing to the point where I would say he was the MVP of that series. Uh, I think you probably have to you know, look the way of Brock Besser and Quinn Hughes, most certainly. And then to a lesser degree, a role player like Brandon Sutter. I can't go so far as to say Sutter was the MVP of the series because there has to be some bottom line uh, ultimately attributed to it. But uh, I'm going to go to Besser uh, just because I had my doubts about Besser as to where he was with his game and sort of what, you know, what impact he could have given his injuries and all that sort of stuff. And the fact that he performed as well as he did. um, Yeah, I'm going to go with Besser. Yeah, so clearly Matt Sakaris had that report about Brock Besser just to, you know, get him going for the playoffs, right? It was That's all right. part it was all part of the master plan. Second assist to uh, Matt Sakaris on every Brock Besser goal. Yeah, yeah really just stir it just stirring it up for everyone. So you mentioned Quinn Hughes. You said you guys had a discussion, I believe, on the postgame show is is Quinn Hughes already in that discussion of best Canuck defenseman ever? Now I'm gonna have well skill set, skill set certainly. I mean you have to you have to have the career, you have to stay healthy, all that sort of stuff. But if we're talking just raw skill set of a Canuck player, like yeah, I mean I would say I would say absolutely. Yeah, and I know Kyle Bowen's a bit of a humble guy, so he's not gonna say it. But Kyle Bowen said before the season started that Quinn Hughes is already the best Canucks defenseman ever. So anyone trying to say afterwards that Quinn Hughes is the best Canucks defenseman ever, get behind Kyle Bowen. But I remember that first game, and I was a doubter. I remember that first game, if you can go all the way back to October, that season opener against Edmonton. He had that play where Leon Dreisel just kind of stiff arms him, goes in and scores, and I'm thinking, oh, man, like, is, is this guy ready defensively? He's a bit of a smaller guy. Maybe it's going to take him a season to learn the defensive game in the NHL, but that hasn't been a problem since. He's been one of the best top, top 10, top 15 defensemen in the league, and you mentioned the skill set. The Canucks have had solid defensemen throughout their history. Like, hey, I'm 26 years old. I remember guys like Matias Olin, Ed Jovanovski, even a guy like Alex Edler, even Kevin Bx. They've, they've had solid defensemen, but they've never had a guy you can say, oh, he can win multiple Norrises. And that's what they have with Quinn Hughes right now, right? They have a guy, if everything goes right, he can maybe win a couple of Norris trophies in the future. Yeah, I, I think he's amazing. I mean, we've had slick skating defensemen like a Yurke Lume, uh, and you know, there are some similarities. But I think it's just a, a more elite version of Lume is what you're is what you're getting. I think the edge works a little bit better from Hughes. I mean, Lume was pretty agile too, but I'd still say everything's just that much better when it gets to a guy like Quinn Hughes. But it's uh, it's pretty exciting. I mean, this kid can can see it all. He can do it all. Uh, you know, and in terms of that stiff defensive play, yep, I mean, there's going to be learnings, but there's also this. Sometimes, like, Leon Dreisaitl's a freak. Like, there's not more than one Leon Dreisaitl in the league. So if Leon Dreisaitl's the one guy that can do a power move on Quinn Hughes and be somewhat successful with it, okay, you give it to him. Sometimes the top 1% is going to beat you, but if you're pretty good defensively on the other 99% of the league, I think Canuck fans will be A-OK with that. So, uh, you know, he's going to get better defensively. Is Dreisaitl still going to be able to one-up him from time to time in four or five years? Yeah, probably. I don't care. I mean, <laughs> if it's just Leon Dreisaitl and maybe two other guys in the league, I think you're going to be OK with that, given what he does for you offensively as well. Yeah, and you see it in his decision-making as well, his willingness to take risks. And maybe he gives the puck over a couple more times a game or a couple more times in a few games. But you just have a feeling anytime he makes those 
those skill moves that he can pull it off. That he like nine times out of ten, this guy can pull off, and maybe a couple of times it doesn't work. But he has that ability nine times out of ten to make that skill play that I don't think the Canucks have had ever. And I think he's reasoned enough. He's smart enough that he doesn't make too many stupid passes, you know. And so I, I think we can probably count those on one hand for the season. And he can also come back too. He's a good enough skater. I wouldn't call him blindingly fast, but he's certainly quick. Um, where if he makes that cross ice pass and it gets picked off, he's got a chance to catch the guy and make up for the mistake as well and uh, use his feet to, to remedy. So, no, I think the risk reward is certainly uh, in the Canucks' favor when it comes to Hughes and uh, the fact that he's so smart and knows when to green light himself and, and, to, and to make that risk. The other day uh, in game four, he made a couple of plays. He snuck down into the corner, and he couldn't see, oh, things aren't going. He didn't have the puck anymore. The things were on the far side. He could see that things weren't going so well, and he knew it was time to retreat back to position because it was probably going to head the other way, and he was right. And then he was able to make a defensive play as well. So, you know, it's just smarts. It's knowing when to use that green light, knowing when to throw it back in reverse and get back on D, um, and he's got it all. Yeah, and there's also that play that Elias Patterson passes across the offensive zone and you're thinking, well, there's no one there. But then Quinn Hughes pops out of nowhere, I believe off the bench, and then the, another great scoring chance as well, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, the the young guys all think in the same way, so that's actually uncanny for pl- young players that have never played before. It's this this new young player mentality. We've sort of grown past the... And this is not to drag a guy like a Steve Eiserman, but it was skill, but it was with that, you know, old school, tough as nails mentality, which, you know, you like those guys in your team and everything. But, you know, it's not what these new superstars have, which is this, I don't know, it's like an infusion of the ballet inside of their minds where they just they just know how it all works, how it's all interconnected and I don't know. It's just, it's wonderful to watch. All right. I'm definitely clipping that for the show. Blake Price says Elias Patterson is better than Steve Eiserman. That's going to be the headline. Yeah, I, don't think, I mean, that's not the. T- I mean, he might be. I mean, I, I don't think it's not. It's not necessarily a nice cold take either. Is that what I meant? No, well, not for the career. Skill wise, I I think that's I think that's a true statement. Elias Pettersson is more skilled offensively than than Steve Eiserman. Uh, you know, to see where he is fourteen hundred points later, but uh, but yeah, he's uh, he's an elite an elite skill set. That's for sure. Yeah, so you mentioned him earlier, Brandon Sutter. Are we finally seeing the foundational Brandon Sutter that Jim Benning promised us five years ago when he got traded? Did it just take the playoffs to finally see Brandon Sutter in all his glory? Or am I just getting ahead of myself as a fan thinking, oh man, Brandon Sutter, like he's gonna, he's, he's turned around. Maybe there's some value. I, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, is four games. It was four games against a pretty mediocre team. Uh, it was four games, uh, wasn't the playoffs. We all know that they just got into the playoffs with that series win. So let's just see if Sutter backs that up with another good series here against a very good blues team, then we can start to heap some praise and say, okay, this is the guy that they were waiting for, but this is going to be a test. Like the, the blues are a good version of the wild or the wild are a bad version of the blues. They play very similar kind of style. Blues just do everything a lot better. So this is going to be an interesting test to see if a guy like Brandon Sutter can still stand out amongst the crowd when this is the, the Uber version of, of the Minnesota Wild. Yeah. 
And I'm not, I'm not tripping right now, right? Like, Brandon Sutter looked good in that series. Like, he had a few yeah. good chances. Like, he stood up for his teammates against Kevin Fiala. The one wild forward I was scared about, he had he had a good series, right? I think the bottom six in general had a good series. And that was one of the big question marks going into that series. Well, and but that's that's where, uh, like, legitimate depth. People were saying the, the Wild had scoring depth because Donato was on the fourth line with 14 goals. And, you know, they got Zuccarello down on the third line periodically and stuff. But none of these guys had good seasons. I mean, Donato with 14 goals in the fourth line is fine. But then he was healthy scratch. So if this guy was really that good and to be feared, he didn't even play the back half of the series. So how good was he that he wasn't even being used by his head coach? And Zuccarello was abysmal. So against a team that has honest-to-goodness depth, and the Blues have honest-to-goodness depth, let's see what that matchup looks like and, and how much success Sutter has. Because... Let's face it, the, the Canucks had more elite top six talent. So the Wild were consumed trying to deal with that top six of the Vancouver Canucks that Sutter had a lot more favorable matchups against the bottom six generally of the uh, of the Minnesota Wild that was not very good, like, at all. So this is going to be a test. I'm not saying that Sutter can't do it, but this is where the rubber meets the road. Four games against the Minnesota Wild uh, in a play-in series not going to erase what we've seen from Brandon Sutter up until this point. Good for him, but let's see it when it actually counts, which is in the playoffs. Yeah, and the Canucks will be playing the St. Louis Blues. Uh, this episode is coming up tomorrow, so I guess on Wednesday we will see that game, game one, 7.30 p.m. What do you think of the Canucks' chances in that series? Because I'm of the opinion, and I said this you know, before even the Minnesota series as well, Like you can't really rely on the regular season series because that was so long ago and the conditions are so different. And I play a lot more stock right now into seeing those three games the St. Louis Blues played in what they're calling the round robin. And what I saw was a team that they didn't look that interested in being there. Like I saw that game, especially that game against Dallas, like they had a lead, they blew it, and they didn't look that good. And in fact, they had a lead in all three games. They had a lead in all three games, and they blew it every single game. Now, does that help the Canucks in any way? Do you see those round robin games and think, okay, maybe the Blues don't want to be here, and if... They're not ready to play. The Canucks can take advantage of that. Or, as you mentioned, are the St. Louis Blues just a better version of Minnesota in terms of they have depth, but they have better depth than Minnesota as well? Well, I, I think they are undoubtedly a better team than the Minnesota Wilds. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. And they've got a ton of experience. So uh, that's that's you know the, the risk here. I'll say this, though. The, 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 the Blues could be one of two things. They could be indifferent to being in the bubble to this whole experience they could be in, they, they were certainly indifferent in the round robin series and that puts them behind the eight ball so even if they have flicked the switch and they're like okay it's go time it's the playoffs got to defend our crown it doesn't help that they played those three meaningless games and ultimately like that last game versus the dallas stars you win you play the flames you lose you play the canucks if you're them like, can you really differentiate between the Flames and the Canucks? Like, yeah, you know, there's slightly different styles of play uh, given the head coaches, but there's no like tangible, like fear difference between the Flames and the Canucks. You're not going to be more scared against one team than you are against the other. They both have got their pluses and minuses, right? So, you know, how could there have been any urgency in that final game versus the Dallas Stars? So, the Canucks are finely tuned machine right now. They've had they've been battle tested. They've had their backs against the wall to some degree, losing that opening game. Like they could not lose game two and go down two nothing. So the Canucks did have their backs against the wall effectively in that game, and they've also had their battle tested in terms of closing out the series. Like 
up to one and not wanting to force a winner take all game five. Like that takes something for the Canucks to battle back, come from behind in that last game and seal the deal. Well, that's an impressive, that's an impressive game for the Canucks. So I think the Canucks come in here in as good a shape as possible. Granted, no Tyler Toffoli, but really in as good a shape as they could possibly want to be against the Stanley Cup champions. And they are getting the Stanley Cup champions in in as untested a, a position. So it's all set up for Canucks success. If the Canucks don't win this series, they just weren't good enough to win this series. I don't think you can come up with any any excuses at all. This is set up for Canucks success. And if they don't win, it's just because they weren't good enough. That's all. Yeah, and you mentioned that game four, that game four victory. I was really impressed with that as well because when Jacob Markstrom lets in that first goal, wasn't the best goal. And you're thinking, oh man, the, the Wild are up one, you're uh, up one nothing. That's a recipe for disaster because we all know how the Wild play. They're now just going to sit back, clog up the middle, and the Canucks have a tough time trying to get back lead. But to their credit, they came back and they pretty the Jacob Markstrom did not have a good game in that game. Let's just be real. But the nope, Canucks kind of they, they outscored their defensive efficiency that game and and won it in overtime. So I think that bodes well in that series if they can outscore the defensive defensive deficiencies maybe against the Blues. They might have a chance in this series. Yeah, and you know they could just avoid the defensive deficiencies if at all possible as well. So you know I, I expect them to tighten up. I think as soon as Jordy Ben gets up and going, and he's going to have to practice a bunch with the team. But I'm I'm wondering uh, Travis Green heads towards Oscar Fantenberg in the regular season as a preference. I wonder if he might revisit that, given that Jordy Ben's got experience playing the Blues, having played in the Central Division, and has got experience in the playoffs as well. I wonder if he might go to Jordy Ben for just a little more sage wisdom once Ben is up to speed. And that's probably game two at the earliest. I don't think they, um, my guess is they will not feel like he's had enough ice time, even up until game two. So I would suspect we probably see Jordy Ben in game three, unless defensively the Canucks just get that much better, but it's going to be awfully hard to lean on the big four as much as they are. 24 minutes a game in those last couple of games versus the Minnesota Wild, and I, I don't begrudge Travis Green for doing it that way. You just needed to make sure you got to round to the to the playoffs, and in a, in a best of five series, you kind that's one thing we learned. And whether or not we ever see best of fives ever again, in a best of five series, it kind of feels like they're all deciding games. Like you really don't want to lose any of the games. Like they're all so consequential, right? So, um, I understand why he went with the big four as much as he did, 24 minutes a game sort of thing. But over a best of seven, you, you don't really want to have that same approach. So the sooner Jordy Ben could get in there, maybe. And I don't see much of a difference. I, 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 Travis Green's, you know, preference of Oscar Fantenberg this season, given the contract they gave to Jordy Ben, I was perplexed by that. But uh, we'll see what happens when Ben's healthy. Yeah, and let's talk about the defense between the two teams because I think that's the biggest difference, deficiency between the two teams is. I think it's a very similar, again, like you said, very similar to Minnesota where you can argue maybe Quinn Hughes is the best defenseman in the series. Like, I know Alex Petrangelo is very good, but Quinn Hughes is a very good defenseman as well. But He's more dynamic. He's, I would, yeah, more dynamic. That's a good way to put it. But I would say St. Louis defensive depth is miles ahead of where the Canucks are at this point. Is that where the Canucks are going to have the biggest challenges, battling that defensive depth against St. Louis? Yeah, I'm going to be curious about that because they're not small either. So, um you know, what are the corners going to look like? You know, uh, you know what's the risk of injury uh, for the battles in the corners? Uh, for the Canuck forwards, especially, you're going to be, you know, down low. JT Miller, let's hope that block shot hand is uh, is is okay because 
you know, he's played very stiff along the boards. He's uh, He grinds it all out. They're going to need all of that big frame of his banging bodies and creating loose pucks for uh, the, for the rest of that line. Uh, you know, Jake for Tannen might come in handy here. Let's see how Louis Erickson does against, you know, the uh, the bigger team. Like, does Jake for Tannen get a promotion just based on body type? You know, if they find that they're hitting their brick wall a little bit on that Horvat line. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting to see how the Canucks battle through the grind of the of the uh, of the St. Louis Blues, and if that slows up any sort of offensive momentum that they they might feel like they have coming out of the series with the Wild. Mm-hmm. And one big talking point from the defense for the Canucks out of that Minnesota series was Tyler Myers. If you're Travis Green, like what the hell do you do with this guy? Like he took nine penalties or ten penalties or some ridiculous amount of minor penalties. People are calling him Tyler Miners online like, what do you do if you're travis green because he's a vet if he was a rookie he'd be stapled to the bench let's not kid ourselves but he's a six million dollar guy and he's been around a while he's a veteran if you're travis green like what the hell do you do with tyler myers do you keep do, do you like limit his ice time at all or you just hope he figures it out well he didn't punish him certainly in game number four so no i don't think that's going to be the plan and he calmed down no penalties in those last two periods oh, thank so that's great um what an accomplishment but yeah i mean if that broken record pops its head out again i mean my goodness uh like i don't know what you do you just you can't be guaranteeing the other team two power plays a game yourself one guy cannot be responsible for giving the other team two power plays a game so i think it's it's something to monitor but travis green certainly isn't holding it over his head just yet but you do wonder if uh, he does grow a little bit tired of it uh, the longer this goes on he's he's got to learn if they're calling it a certain way like, even if it's totally unfair, oh, he's just – those penalty. I saw that from a couple of calls. That's just a penalty for being big. But if you're if you're getting that call called against you time and time again, make the adjustment. Yeah, if it, it's unfair, great. It's unfair. Make the adjustment because you're not going to convince the refs to do something different. We know that, right? So if it's a pattern, fix it. Yeah, and I had this conversation. Me and Kyle had this conversation, sorry, with Grady Sass when he was on sipping on a 40. It seems like Tyler Myers – He's what six seven six eight. He could be he could be a small forward in the NBA. That's how tall he is, and he seems to always be out of position when it comes to passes. Like I don't understand how this guy can always be out of position when it comes. To, he's always like reaching for a pass or it's below him. He has one of the longest reaches in the NHL. How are these passes always so out of position for him? I, I honestly and like I think he's fine. Like I, I I don't find myself yelling at the TV a ton with him, but I don't see a six million dollar defenseman like i just don't like a defenseman i'd have on my team for sure i think he's a four or five kind of guy that you'd slot in but i don't see a sought after free agent six million dollar defenseman it's just like he skates well but he skates well for a six foot eight guy i don't know that he skates well like when you see him next to quinn hughes that's the guy that skates well you know like i he skates well for six eight guy he's got re- range and reach because he's six eight but I don't see just an amazing, amazing defenseman. Um, I, I get why the Canucks went after him. He was available, and he doesn't cost you anything outside of money and cap space. But it's a lot of cap space, and you do wonder if 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 he slows down even a, a smidge here in the next couple of years, that contract's going to feel like an albatross. Yeah, absolutely. So let's maybe talk about the forward depth against the, uh, for, for either team for a bit. I think this series, if the Canucks have any chance of it win the series, and I think personally this series is going six or seven games. I think I think it could be a long, tough series. I think if the Canucks want to win this series, though, they got to hope, and much like the Minnesota series, that Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser 
the lotto line essentially performs miraculously almost like they score like goal two goals a game because I see like I see Robert Thomas on the third line for St. Louis Blues and Robert Thomas is one of those young great two-way centers in the league and I I struggle to see how a, a third line center with Brandon Sutter can go up against that line how, how do the Canucks counter that forward depth because it seems like the lotto line has much like the Minnesota series the lotto line has to perform very well for the Canucks to win this series yeah, the bottom six has got to has got to find something, right? Like that goal that Roussel scored. Like, where did that come from? That's what I. Th- those are the kinds of things I wanted to see Roussel do, but that was a flash in the pan. That one play, right? Um, great anticipation and great speed. But where's that anticipation? Where's that speed on a more regular basis? You got to be opportunistic when you're a third line player. And so, yeah, somebody's gonna have to step up. You know, Vertanen's either gonna have to contribute or Godet's gonna have to make the most of an opportunity if he gets into the lineup. But yeah, they're going to have to absolutely counter that, and, and and consequently, if they don't, then the power play gets that much more pressure put on it, right? If if the Canucks find themselves lotto line and only the lotto line having success, which let's face it, they kind of risked a little bit in that Minnesota Wild series. If it's just the lotto line producing, then man, the power play needs to be getting a goal a game, like it, maybe more, maybe a goal and a half per game sort of thing in order for the Canucks to have a chance in this series because yeah I, I don't know that I've got a, a ton of confidence that the bottom six is going to produce at the same rate that it did against the Minnesota Wild as asking a lot um, again does Bertani get the bump up to a Horvat line to create a little bit more there does Tyler to fully miraculously recover in the next week that maybe he's an option for a game two or a game three we hadn't thought about that but that's a possibility as well have you heard anything about Tyler DeFoley and the walking boot situation? I, I read somewhere online, I can't, maybe it was Rick Dollywell actually who reported this, the walking boot has gone smaller, which I yeah, think, I think is... Yeah, talking I, about that. It's a more streamlined one now. I mean, let, let's, walking boots can be because you've got a small fracture, certainly. That's its most usual application. But uh, a lot of the time, they do it even when there is no fracture, but there's an intense amount of pain, and they just want to immobilize it. And give it the best chance to heal, just so that even walking on it, like he he might be fully able to walk, but they don't want to exacerbate anything by putting it through the the pressure of walking. So impossible to know. Uh, what I can tell you is, the day after that it happened, he w- was intending on getting on skates the next day and giving it a go. So. It's not so bad that it's crazy to think that he would come in into this series. But we know that with whether it's ligament or hairline fracture, sometimes it can just be annoyingly enough injured that you just can't can't come back. It's not so crazy that, you know, he should be casted or not so crazy that he's walking around in excruciating pain. But it's just there enough that you can't get back. He's at he's at nine out of ten, but he he just can't get the ten out of ten, perhaps. So we'll see. Yeah, and I'm hoping with how Travis Green is so secret about these lineups pre, you know, warmups on the game. I'm hoping Tyler DeFoley makes some sort of dramatic pro wrestling reveal before game one. Like, oh shit, Tyler DeFoley's back. He's on the second line. Like, that's what I'm hoping nope. for. I think that's fully possible. I, I, you know, they do not seem to be wanting to share much information with us at all. So, no, I, th- I think it's it's very possible that one day. Tyler DeFoley comes out of the tunnel for warm-up, and there was no hint of that uh, beforehand. I think that's 
I think it's eminently possible. Hey, when you Levy came down the tunnel, that's we, we saw that first game and we're like, oh, I guess he just wants to give him the experience, the twirl in case he's needed later. And then when he came up the second time, we all kind of gave it the stink eye of, why would you do this two days in a row? And then ultimately he was in the lineup. Mm-hmm. So I actually want to ask you about that. Uh, I've hear, I see a lot of people, what I call the, the big J journalists like yourself, like the Jeff Pattersons, mm-hmm. like the Thomas Strands, tweeting about how the Canucks don't, aren't like, you know, letting people let, uh, like go to practice and like tweet on the lines and you don't see a line. Well, it's not before. the Canucks. That's the NHL part. Oh, they, okay. They're not watching practice at the NHL. That's not the Canucks. Okay. Sorry. So, so the NHL in general, like you're, yeah. people aren't allowed to watch practice like you usually would during what we would call normal times. Yeah. You know, me and Kyle have talked about this, like. It, it seems like just a big J journalist problem. Like for us, me and Kyle will find out the lines beforehand and like, it's not really a big issue for us. And Hey, maybe that's why we are where we are in the Canucks podcast universe. Cause we don't really, we're not really that worried, but for your, for your profession, for all your colleagues, is it, is it been a big deal? Not having the access that you usually would during a regular NHL season? Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just different. Right. And, and I think it's, it's a little less serving of your of your fan base. Let's face it, you know we're all hockey nerds. We all love the hockey information, and if you're only getting it 25 minutes before puck drop, then you don't get to be a fan and and talking about it, debating. If there's nothing to debate for the entire day leading up to game day, then you're just kind of sitting there, right? But the more your brand is being talked about. Like if you were, if the you know other teams were releasing their lines after their game day skate, and then the radio boards light up, the message boards light up, Twitter lights up, and you get the debate back and forth, and your brand is sizzling all day long. If no information comes out, guess what people are doing? Nothing. There's no talk. There's no jibber jabber. You know, there's, there's the odd bit of speculation, but what's the point of speculating when we really have no idea? what Travis Green is ultimately going to arrive on. I just think it's, it does a disservice to the fan base who get a rise out of talking about this stuff, uh, talking about the certainties, hashing out the decision. And anytime your debate is on the, on the front burner, you're winning as a brand. This has been the grand criticism of the National Hockey League uh, not spreading out their their television rights and people are going to say oh it's it's uh, sour grapes because you're with tsm tsm's got more hockey on the air now than they did with the national tv rights yeah, all the regional rights. all the regional rights yeah so no what this is is think about the national football league what network is the, is the national football league on everyone they're on like literally all every network yeah so where do you get more saturation where do you get more people buzzing about it more media talking about it on when it's on one network or when it's on four networks the nba not on one network you know so spread yourself out keep that conversation all the time happening and i don't know why the nhl and the canucks in particular canucks are are the model of the nhl i I think the nhl wants the canucks to do exactly what they're doing but the rest of the markets were like no our fan base the media wants to know who's skating with who here here are the lines and really you know all that secrecy leading up to game number one and guess what happened they lost you know, and they, they struggled to pull out a couple of other victories, needed overtime and another one. So all that secrecy against a mediocre team, do you think really the secrecy is what got them the victory? Or do you think they they probably just played out as they would normally play out? That's going to be my guess. And I'm going to guess the secrecy will do them no favors versus the Blues. It will do them no harm either. 
but it'll do them no favors. Yeah, that was a big J journalist rant right there about access. Like that's that that was the content I was expecting out of that answer. But it, it's not even self-serving, right? Like it, if you're the NHL, you're about the bottom dollar. You're about putting yourself out there. The more you restrict things, the more you tighten things down. Guess what? You're not out there, and all the leagues that are out there. They're the ones that do the best. Yeah, but isn't it fun to speculate as a radio host? Isn't it fun to say, "Who maybe this guy's going to be on the second line, or this guy's going to be the third line center? Isn't it fun to speculate? For a brief moment, yes. Yeah, but but debating what you know is certain is far more fruitful and better discussion, right? Because that's what you know is going to happen. Uh, that, that's a debate we can talk about the both sides of. When you just throw it, I think it might be blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it might be. It might be something completely different. It might be just tweaked a little bit. Like, it's just, it just becomes a little bit more like you're yelling at clouds as opposed to, you know, a, an intellectual debate about whether or not this is the right choice. There's just, there's too many variables, right? With 12 forward, six defensemen, you know, plain speculation. So there's, there's too much that could go wrong. Okay, I just have one more question about this series, and then I have a few more questions about your career and such. Who's the better goalie in this series, Jacob Markstrom or Jordan Bennington? Hmm. It's tough. Better is such a subjective word. Uh, who's going better right now? Probably Bennington. I mean, that was a that was a tight game versus the Stars the other day. Uh, I would have said the opposite two weeks ago. I would have thought Jacob Markstrom was sort of on his game. Markstrom has been very good these last two seasons. If we're going to take the goalies of the last two seasons. Boy, I'd probably say Markstrom just by a smidge over Bennington, just on their resume. But it's a a finicky position, as we know. You know, it's sort of, are you going right now if you're a goaltender? And I don't know if Markstrom's going. In fact, I think we can safely say he's not going right now. So it's a matter of whether or not Markstrom can find his A game and be the Markstrom that we've seen during the regular season the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like I said, a few more questions, mostly about your career now. What's it like working with Matt Sakaris? Because I've had him, I've had him on the show. He's a nice guy, and you agree. Like I have nothing to respect for anyone who agrees to come out of the show and come on my show. Sorry, and take time out of there to do this. But I mean, you you can be honest right now. Like, what's it like working with with Matt Sakaris? It, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's something that if you took it too seriously, you'd probably uh, not like it. You have to learn not take a lot of it seriously. Uh, like on today's show, I called him an idiot several times because he was being an idiot. Um, and you know, if you, if you take things personally, you will fall, fall victim to the, to the character. Uh, you know, Matt is the Matt here on the air, but it's, it's exacerbated a little bit. It's a, it's a version, right? So, you know, he, he ratchets it up quite a bit and any debates or any disagreements we have are waters off. Uh, water off ducks back so it, it doesn't ever get terribly serious but um we get heated at times but uh, no I, we wouldn't be doing it for 10 years if uh, if we didn't like it yeah so another question i have about your show is you know when matt decides to run with that story about brock Besser, does he tell you ahead of time or is he just going to be like okay i'm going to run with it with the story but like how's that process work on your show because you know you've been in this market a long time you know a story like that is going to ruffle some feathers, and it's going to get some traction. Yeah. That day, he told me about it in, uh, before the show. And he said, I think I'm going to go with it. Um, like, 
he felt strongly enough in his sourcing that uh, that he wanted to go for it. And I was like, uh, okay. I mean, it's it, it's it's one of those things that it's so easy to deny, right? It's it's uh, and so you you set yourself up for criticism in these in these cases. So hey, if he wants to be that guy and and put himself on the line, full power to him. I mean, he's. He's convinced of his sources, and so he he's willing to go to bat for it. And if he is, then hey, power to him. It's just in a story like that, where you'll never get anybody to ever say on record, "Yes, that was true." You just you set yourself up for criticism, and he was brave enough to set himself up for criticism and take it. So, uh, you know, who am I to uh, tell him not to? Yeah, and we I had this conversation with Matt when he was he was on my show. I doubt he's making it up because he has too much reputation. To oh, lose. he's not making it up. Yeah, no, no. no way. And like I, that's what bothered me the most when I saw people online saying, "Oh, he's making it up," and automatically when Jim Benning denies it, they say, "Oh, Matt's making it up." Well, like, what's Jim Benning going to say? Yeah, yeah, we we were we were going to trade him. That would have set off even more fireworks. But this is what people don't understand: is that this that conversation happens for. 21 out of 23 guys on the roster. I yeah. mean, really, Pedersen and Hughes would probably be the only guys that you just... Gretzky was traded. Again, the ultimate thing. If Gretzky's been traded, guess what? Pretty much everybody on your roster can be traded as well. And again, people uh, people hear the headline and don't listen to the story. So people heard the story second and third hand as the Canucks are thinking about trading Brock Besser. No, that's not really what the story was. The story was they've had internal discussions about what that would look like. If we traded Brock Besser, what would we then have to do to fill that hole? What would the cap situation like? It's called a brainstorming session. You know, when you see that train coming down the tracks, which is salary cap hell and all these young players making too much money, you think, okay, how do we avoid the train? And so one of the things that Matt is reporting that they bandied about was, okay, what if we traded Brock Besser? That doesn't mean they're going to trade Brock Besser. That doesn't mean that they've called any other teams of Brock Besser. It means that they explored the room, as a, to use actor speak. They, you know, they just kind of chewed the fat on what would that look like. You know, basically, and the point I'm not putting that out there is, you know, it's not a fait accompli that Brock Besser is a Canuck for life. And the Canucks have thought, about that, have thought that through. He didn't even comment on what their final analysis was. And I think that, you know, people just freak out, though, and say, oh, you know, Matt's saying that the Canucks are, are trying to trade Brock Besser. No, he's not. And if you listen carefully, you would have heard exactly what the report was. And it's probably not that crazy an assertion. Conversation probably that happens in every uh, team's front office about players that you would be very shocked that it happens about. But that's called doing their job if you're a general manager. That's called doing due diligence and dotting eyes and crossing T's and making sure you've thought of everything. Because if not, the GM next to you, he has thought of everything and he's going to one-up you. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I would venture to say that any player not named Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes on the Vancouver Canucks is perhaps tradable. Yeah. I mean, JT Miller's been great, but if somebody blew you away with X, Y, and Z, would you think about it? Hell yeah, you would. Hell yeah, you would. Uh, so it's... It's all circumstantial. You also have to know when to bail on a, on a player. You look at a lot of the uh, the teams that have made it to the Cup, maybe say for the uh, Golden Knights because they don't have a whole lot of history. But, you know, for teams that have made the Cup, chances are they've traded away one pretty big surprising piece before they got there. One guy that you'd thought would have been a part of that 
eventual cup run for Team X. Only he wasn't. And he was traded for a couple of other pieces that ultimately put that team over the top. So who is that on the Vancouver Canucks? I, you know, somebody's going to be like, think about the, the Raptors. Like, all those star players, they traded DeMar DeRozan for heaven's sakes. Yeah, but they got the piece that got them there, right? You just, you don't know what that trade is going to entail uh, if it happens at all. So I also want to ask you, what lessons do you take as a as a hockey fan from the qualifying play-in play in rounds? Uh, the lesson I take just from watching and just in terms of roster construction, lesson I take is like depth matters. You need to have depth behind your star players in order to make a run at the Stanley Cup. I, I look like Edmonton Oilers are the perfect example. Edmonton Oilers got two of the best forwards in the league and Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid, but they didn't have the depth behind them, and that's ultimately what cost them the series, right? Like, this isn't the NBA. You can't play a Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl 50 out of the 60 minutes and let them run out there the whole game. Like, what's the max you can play a guy like I think Connor their forward McDavid? set's fine, though. I think Edmonton's forward set is fine. I think it's just the defensive depth that they've never really had. Uh, they've never had the right pieces on D to get them over the top. Their, their forward lines are... I think it's totally fine. I mean, between the Nuge and Yamamoto and, and uh, heck, you know, the, even the, the bottom six guys, I mean, I think they're, they're totally fine. I mean, look at what Pittsburgh does. Pittsburgh rolls in forwards that you never heard of. Like, nobody knew what a Riley Shane or a Connor Sherry was. Uh, um, you know, all these weird guys. I mean, names you don't even know until, uh, until they're on the uh, Pittsburgh games because those two players – make everybody around them that much better. You'll get that same effect with the Oilers. What they've never concentrated on is A, goaltending, and B, defense, which at last we checked, uh, pretty important yeah. parts of the championship. I, I thought you were supposed to build from the net out. Um, it shows what happens when you completely neglect that. So, you know, that it's a building defensive depth, I think, and the Canucks are, they've got to be careful uh, that they are on that file. And having one more young defenseman, again, this is where the Ole Ulevi hole you know, if you Levy was just showing a little bit more promise, boy, you'd, you'd breathe it just a little bit more, which puts a lot of pressure on Rafferty and Rathbone that, you know, they need to pan out. Mm -hmm. So you knew I was going to ask you about this. The Radio Wars. I'm going to let you talk your shit about your competitors. Not going to say their names here. Just the floor is yours. Say whatever you want about the other guys. I've got no shit to talk. Honestly, it is, uh, I, I take great amusement at the shit that they talk on Twitter, which is a tad rich. But uh, no, I think the the best thing to do when you're the incumbent in these sorts of things is to uh, not buy into that. Because that only, the radio wars only benefits the chaser, not the chasey. So yeah, I, uh, I try not to get too involved in it. Uh, I bit last weekend a little bit and uh, threw out a couple little fun jabs but uh i'm uh, i'm gonna step back for for now and and just watch you're about taking the moral high road i i, I respect that it's not moral high ground I, I, just I, the high ground in general great, it's a great strategy for them it's a, to uh you know because publicity is publicity right but uh it doesn't benefit uh it doesn't benefit our station are you are you surprised that like kind of the back and forth that's been going on because Maybe, hey, maybe I don't follow other radio, sports radio markets around the country that well, but it seems to me like there's a lot of back and forth going around. I don't see that too often in other cities. Again, maybe I'm not paying no, attention I, enough. No, I, I think it's really weird. I mean, I've lived in Toronto for a number of years, and uh, I saw nothing that comes close to this. That's why when 
they get aggressive. It's a little shocking. I've never seen that in professional media, but it's their strategy and uh, they're going to stick to it. Okay, fair enough. Okay, I got two more questions. Okay, so I know from listening to your show, you are a father. And yes. uh, Trevor Beggs, host of Silky and Filthy and The Quiggy, and technically my boss, is going to be a father in October. Him and his wife expecting a baby girl in October. I asked this question to Jay Pat as well. Do you have any first-time parenting advice for Trevor Beggs? And I hope you can give me something better than Jay Pat, who essentially said, you know, babies are remarkably durable, and if you let them get hurt, like, it's not going to affect them that much. Uh, it's, I mean, a version of that is not bad. Like, don't sweat the small stuff. Like, the fourth kid, we barely, uh, you know, barely attended to. Uh, she's raised herself, you know, so... Um, kids are surprisingly resilient. I would say early on at the very least sleep when they sleep, you might want to think, Oh, baby's asleep. I can finally go do X, Y, Z. No sleep. You will, you will find yourself completely incapable of caring for them when they're awake, unless you take care of your sleep. So, you know, it's something you don't know at the time. And so you get, try to get by in four and a half, five hours of sleep, but, uh, it's hard. So sleep. Okay. Sleep. Isn't that going to mess up your sleep schedule though? Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe that's sleep. why, I, maybe that's why I'm not going to have kids in the future. I'm just too selfish. I don't want to mess up my own sleep schedule. Oh, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Okay. So one final question. I have this book here, the book of questions. You can see that right there. I'm yeah. going to ask you one random question from okay. this book. Okay. I'm just going to flip here. The sunset is uh, giving me some mood lighting. You see yeah. The see, here. we're setting yeah. it up well. Okay. Here, hey, one about kids. Here's a good one. Question 40. You discover that because of a mix-up at the hospital, your wonderful two-year-old is not actually yours. Would you want to switch kids to try to correct the mistake? Assume you'd have no further contact with the child you gave up. Wow. That is a horrible question. Um, <laughs> it's deep. I, I prefer to think For it's a deep. father of four, no less. Uh, <laughs> and, but they're only two. See, if they're, if they're 10... The answer is easy. You just keep your own kid because yeah. that's the kid you raised. Yeah, yeah. At the age of two, right on that cusp of them understanding and having like memories and all this stuff. Yeah, because at one, it's an easy switch. I'm switching at one. Yeah. Two, that is right on the border. They know who you are. They're talking to you too. I think you keep. You keep. You keep but that is that's right on the border. Yeah. See, I've never had children. I've obviously never had any children myself, but. I'm going to trust your judgment. I think, I think that's the right call. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you risk, you really risk messing, messing the kid up. I think under one, I think you switch back, but, uh, whew, boy, you came up with, well, that was a real tough one. I thought it was going to be something frivolous. No, 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 no. This, this, the book of questions is surprisingly has a lot of very deep questions. That's what I've yeah. learned doing this little game with everyone. So Blake, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and, uh, hopefully we can have you on again soon. Yeah, it would be good. No problem, man. All right, thank you to Blake Price for coming on an episode. Much appreciated. And I want to end off this episode with what I learned, what you guys should take away from me, from my observations, from the qualifying round of the Stanley Cup play-in playoffs, whatever you want to call them. Officially play-ins, I still consider them playoffs because I have a dumb sports brain like that. Okay, so what's the main takeaway from these series? 
Well, I think it's this. I think it's simply depth matters. Forward depth and defensive depth really matters. Look, hockey isn't basketball. You can't roll two, three super stud forwards for a whole game like you can in the NBA. What's the max you can play a guy like Connor McDavid or even Leon Dreisaitl? What's the max you can play those two a game? 28, 29 minutes, so just under half a game. That's about the maximum, maximum you can play those guys. I don't I don't just say, oh, just depth matters in the sense you don't need to start. You still need those star players. Those guys are going to move you the needle, as we saw in the Canucks-Minnesota series. But you don't want a situation like Edmonton and even to an extent like Toronto where you've got a lot of money tied up and two to three really good forwards and you don't have the depth to back it up because that depth will get exposed come playoff time. We saw, especially in that Edmonton series, Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, and I said this before on previous podcasts on this network, I was convinced in a seven-game series, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl on their own could win you two games in a series. They could count for half a wins. And now I'm starting to rethink that theory. Even look at Toronto. Toronto has, you know, 40 million or whatever tied up in four forwards, and they didn't have the depth necessary to compete with Columbus because of that. Look at Toronto's defense. It's a lot like the Vancouver Canucks, if you think about it. They have Morgan Riley, Jake Muzzin, two really good defensemen, and there's a whole lot of question marks after that. Guys like Tyson Berry, Travis Dermott, Marinchin. So they have, what, two, two and a half defensemen and four really good forwards? That got exposed against Columbus. So depth matters. And depth after you get your star players matters. You can't just have a deep line. You have to have some semblance of star players in there. And of course, what's the other thing you should take from these qualifying rounds? Luck is very important. You need those bounces. You really need those bounces to go your way. Think about this. Think about what happens in that Edmonton-Chicago series if Chicago doesn't get that late winner off, I believe it was Ethan Baird that went off Jonathan Tazen in like top corner. Let's say there's a situation where that game just goes overtime and Edmonton wins. They're up 2-1. Instead of Chicago being up 2-1, they're in the driver's seat. Game five between Leafs and Columbus. What happens if Tavares doesn't hit the post on that open net? That, that game's tied 1-1. So luck matters. You need those bounces. You need that timely save in these series. And that brings me to my other point. How do you get that depth? How do you ensure that your star players are surrounded with depth? You got to get them to take a bit less than they're worth. That's especially important in a hard cap league like the NHL. And I know the player empowerment people are going to say, well, no, 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 these guys deserve to get paid what they get paid, and you will never get in trouble paying your star players. Maybe that's true. But I think Connor McDavid is the only player in the league I would hand a blank check to. 
After that, there is room to negotiate on pretty much every player because it's a resource allocation thing. The more you spend on one player, the less you can spend on other areas. Take, for example, if Toronto got all their star players, I'm talking not John Tavares, but even guys like Matthews, Marner, Nylander, they got them to take maybe a mil, mil and a half less each. That's what, three, four and a half, five million in remaining cap that they can use to get another defenseman, maybe another solid winger, another solid depth forward. What happens if they don't sign guys like Marlowe? Like that's how important salary cap is and getting maybe your star players to take a bit less than they're worth. There's a study out there, and I encourage you to look this up. I wish I had the link out here, but I'm just going to go off what I remember reading in this right before I came here. Essentially a study from the Vancouver Hockey Analytics Conference back in 2017 that said hockey is a strong link game compared to a weak link game. So if you were, if this is a weak link game, your team is only as good as your weakest link, your weakest player. As in a strong link game, your team is only as good as your best player. And the study came, and I, and I apologize to whoever wrote this, wrote this article and presented this because it was really fascinating looking up, looking up at this. The study found that hockey is a strong link game, i.e., you're only as good as your best player compared to a sport like soccer where you're only as good as your weakest player. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to revisit that. Maybe, maybe hockey is a weak link game. Maybe hockey is a sport where you're only as good as your weakest player. And I guarantee you, and I bet you, Kyle Dubas, he's a very progressive thinker, I'm sure he read that study and took a lesson from that, but maybe it's time to reconsider that. Maybe in hockey, you're only as good as your weakest link. So, hey, this is a Canucks podcast, and I'm going on for a bit here, so I'm going to wrap this up soon. What lessons can the Vancouver Canucks take from this? Uh, the, the first thing I thought of right away is having Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes doesn't guarantee you jack shit. You got to be smart around them. Get them on team-friendly deals and use that extra room to get solid depth. And as much as I like guys like Jay Beagle and Brandon Souther, that's not solid depth. You don't want character depth. You want solid, solid depth, right? You don't want those odorous contracts on bottom six guys like like older guys like a Jay Beagle. Let's put it this way. Think back to 2017 when Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl were first emerging onto the playoff scene. They play that series against Anaheim. They lose in a close seven-game series. They could have made the Western Conference Finals last year. If you were to tell an Edmonton Oilers fan, hey, just in general, a hockey fan, if you were to say the Vancouver Canucks are going to make the Stanley Cup playoffs before the Edmonton Oilers next next make the playoffs, you would have been told you're crazy. And technically, that just happened. The Vancouver Canucks have made the playoffs before the Edmonton Oilers last did. Which is wild to think about. Hockey, hockey is not a linear thing in the way that teams don't always progress in a linear fashion. Everyone, again, everyone back in 2017 said, 
the next season, the Oilers are going to be really good. And they took a massive step back because they don't have that depth. So that's a lesson for the Vancouver Canucks. Having Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes is an awesome start. You have the two hardest things to get in a number one center and a number one defenseman. And in case of Quinn Hughes especially, a number one defenseman, I don't think the franchise has ever had. But again, that is not enough. That doesn't guarantee you anything. You need to build depth around that and be smart. That's going to be a challenge for Jim Benning going forward. Again, those are the lessons I think you should take from the 2020 NHL qualifying rounds. Let me know what you think. Tweet at us, at Nick Bondi or at Power of the Towel. Again, subscribe to the network. You get this show. You get Sippin' on a 40, the post-game show, which me and Kyle Bound will be having after every Canucks postseason game. You've got the Quickie, a daily hockey show from Trevor Bakes, and of course, Silky and Filthy, Puck Talk and Bullshit. New episodes on Thursdays, although I think the next episode is going to be released on Wednesday because that's when the playoffs are going to start. Once again, I am Nick Bondi. This is Power of the Towel for the Nux Misconduct Network. Thank you for listening.